0: Now, if I were to, this morning, if I were to lay out to you a panoramic illustration of Scripture or passages of Scriptures that have been historically neglected, overlooked, overinflated, or not considered at all, I would display to you Mark chapter 10. And the verses that we read this morning, you might say, well, why, preacher, why have these verses in particular been neglected? It is because they deal with a very sensitive topic today, and that topic is that of divorce and marriage. But I propose to you in these passages, in these scriptures, there are just they're not just about marriage, not just about divorce. It is it's something more than just a prohibition against divorce. Rather, Jesus is laying out some parameters for balance, something about being Christ-centered. He's laying out some parameters for balance Something that the Apostle Paul would mention in Ephesians chapter 5 and going into chapter 6, there's balance in the family unit. A Christ-centered family brings unity and growth to the kingdom, but spiritual stability is, is key. You know the beauty of expository preaching? Which, as you can tell, I'm an advocate of expository preaching, it forces the expositor or the preacher to handle the verses before them. A faithful expositor preaching through a book will handle these verses. See, exposition is the form of preaching that details the meaning of a particular text or passage of scripture, bringing out the text expositing the text for the worshiper to be engaged therein. It explains what the Bible means by what it says. Have you ever had anybody say, and maybe you do, do, and it's to no detriment, I guess, for your teaching or whatever, but have you ever heard someone say, what does this passage mean to you? Maybe a better way to handle that particular text is to say, what does this text, how does this text apply to you? Because an expositor will explain the Bible and the Bible will mean what it says. The Bible means what it says, implying when you preach through a book such as Mark, an expositor cannot detour around the hard passages like we see today. You cannot detour around the hard passages. You cannot dance around them. You cannot detour around the hard passages just because it's going to offend somebody. There's no wavering. There's no dancing around the text. When you preach and when you teach in this fashion, you must work through difficult passages unless you, of course, want to look like a sellout. Wishy-washy. You know, another word for wishy-washy is a sellout. (laughs) I don't want to be a sellout. God knows. Plus, one who wants to handle the whole Word of God, the whole counsel of the Word of God, you want to do so with integrity and with dignity. And so if sola scriptura is true, which means by Scripture alone then one must handle the whole counsel of truth in the word of God, even on passages that speak about marriage and divorce. The Bible is perfect. It is authoritative. It is accurate. In fact, 2 Timothy 3 and verse 16 says that all scripture is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching. It is useful for rebuking. It is useful for correcting and training in righteousness. So sola scriptura was the unified roar of the Reformation. And many churches around the world, I believe, need to return to this precept and truth. Don't dance around the hard passages. In fact, if one believes in the authority of scripture, you'll handle those passages. So our Bible's open before us. Let's begin with a sermon that I have entitled, Tough Love and Meekness. I believe these go hand in hand. Last week we were challenged, it was actually the week before, uh, we were challenged, last time we were in Mark, we were challenged on casting away idols, those things that in your life would draw you into sin. Now Jesus said in verse 43, and if your hand causes you to sin, well you cut it off. And if your eye offends you, pluck it out. If your foot offends you, causes you to sin, you, you cut that off too. Uh, of course, symbolically speaking, I'm not going to pluck my eye out. I'm not going to cut my foot off. But I am going to divorce, divorce myself from those things that are hindering me from worshiping God. And so the ageless message is still as... Potent now as it was when Jesus stated it those many, many years ago. And if something is permitting you from full devotion and full worship to Jesus, you remove that thing like a fine surgeon with a fine hand with a sharp tool. You remove that influence from your life. You know that Jesus was teaching his disciples how to make other disciples. Even though they did not understand everything that Jesus spoke. They didn't understand it all. They didn't understand that everything everything that Jesus had planned for them. They didn't understand that every one of them except for John would end up dying a martyr's death. But every move, every word, every motion that Jesus made he used to teach. So Mark chapter 10 is one of those chapters with a few verses in it sometimes we get caught in the forest have you ever heard the phrase you can't see the trees of the forest for the trees you ever heard that phrase right chapter 10 can be thought of in that way at least in the church subculture again i submit to you that jesus is teaching something much larger than he is just simple divorce or saying that divorce is prohibited so let's figure out what he's saying. And I know there's some folks here today who divorce is not on their mind and thank the Lord, who, or who husbands or wives are gone on to be with the Lord. Thank the Lord for that too. But there's something for you too. There's something here for you too. But before I speak on divorce, I want to make out this disclaimer, okay? Before I speak on it, I want, I want to lay out this disclaimer to to you, to those who might have gone through a divorce or maybe even now thinking about it. I want to speak to you very frankly if I can. What I want to say to you is let's move from this place forward, if that makes sense. You'll hear me reference later on where a couple that I had married said we want to make this right before the Lord. I want you to to remember that phrase. We want to make this right before God. And so I want to speak to you here and now moving, moving forward. Now I'm not here to condemn you over your divorce. I'm not here to do that. And if there is any repenting that needs to be done on your behalf, I leave that between you and that person and the Lord. So we're moving from this place on. Okay, If you're with me, say amen. So as of right now, we're looking from here into the future. And one thing about pulpiteering, about divorce, is I do not know every case. I do not know every case, for they must be handled individually. And that is, exact, that is what Jesus is doing. There's a bigger picture, verse 1 as they went to the region of Judea and beyond Jordan, the crowds gathered around them and he began to teach them. Now, this is a good precursor to what, he, what follows. And I love this about the Lord Jesus because when people were hungry to learn, he stopped to teach them. I mean, here is the king of glory, robed in flesh, taking to the time to teach those who were hungry to learn. And so they began coming all around to learn from the feet at the feet of the master. I think in today's society, it is, we are full of know-it-alls who don't want to learn, who don't want to sit and listen. <laughs> society is people who don't, they don't listen anymore. And, and if they do listen, it is only to the point of where there are, there's a pause in the voice so I can talk. We can barely stand the 30... 40-minute Sunday school or a 30-minute sermon, and these people came from all around to hear Jesus, to learn at his feet. In fact, the Greek word that is used here for multitude implies they came in caravans. Do you remember the time, and I, I know I've heard many folks, when we talk about the message of Easter, remember the bus, the buses that came in? This is before my time, but buses that used to came in, come in and people were sitting. What happened to those days? Not necessarily even about the drama, but about, about being hungry for God's word. About being hungry to learn at the feet of the master. What happened to those days? This, these words, multitudes, implied caravans, buses, if we will. Came all around. But in those caravans, in those multitudes, were also Pharisees. In verse 2, the Pharisees came up and they asked him, in order to test him, they said, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now where in the world have you seen Jesus teaching on divorce thus far? You haven't seen it. If this is not an obvious show of the hand of the, of the Pharisees, I don't know what is. it is. There hasn't been a teaching on divorce this, as, as of yet. And, and now all of a sudden, out of nowhere, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He was, they were testing him. And he answered them. He said, well, what did Moses command you? You Pharisees supposed to be the, the keepers of the law. You're supposed to know these things. I'll ask you, what did Moses say? You tell me. You know. You're supposed to know. And they were looking to trap Jesus in a contradiction. And they asked him if he thought it was unlawful to divorce. And why this is what they say to, to test him, to catch him in what you might call today a false dichotomy, a, a falsehood, to catch him, to trap him. And the reason that, they, that this is so potent as them trying to catch him in some type of predicament is because these Pharisees had two schools of thought. In, in this pharisaical unit here there was two ways of teaching, two rabbinical schools. One of those rabbinical schools would say that a man could divorce his wife for anything. If, if she, boil, if, she burnt a boiling, uh, if she burnt boiling water, he could divorce her. If he didn't hang the clothes out exactly like he wanted, he could divorce her. I mean, he could divorce over anything. So one rabbinical school would say the man, the male, the, the husband could divorce over anything. The other rabbinical school would say, well, only if there is some infidelity. And most of the folks that we we come in contact with within Orthodox Christianity would say that is is the one thing that, that would be grounds for divorce would be infidelity. So they begin to try to trap Jesus in this conundrum. So Jesus says, well, what does Moses say? This is where Jesus really begins to elaborate on the importance of marriage, and not only marriage, but on the importance of humanity itself. We use this word in theology called the imago Dei, the image of God. That We were created in the image of God, male and female, and we display God's glory by being in His image. So Jesus is not only just teaching about marriage, but he's teaching on humility and humanity. And and then he'll bring in the children later on and and be be used as an example of the family unit. But what do we learn beginning at verse 4? Well, we learn that the two shall become one. You'll often hear this in a a sermon uh, preached through a, a, a wedding ceremony, often used Mark 10, the two shall become one flesh. And they said, well, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. What says you? And I could almost hear the tone, this smugness, this arrogance in their voice as they reference Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4, which is the process of divorce. You give them a written statement, and therefore they can divorce. But in these verses that were written by Moses, Moses is... He's protecting the institution of marriage itself that God had instituted. You do know that God instituted marriage. You know that God, if we could say, invented, put into place the institution of marriage. So not only is Moses protecting that, he is protecting the woman as well. Since marriage has been established by God and not just a simple piece of paper, the Lord lays out the parameters of marriage unless it finds itself in some indecency. You know, I have heard people say that to get get married is just a simple piece of paper. That type of thinking does not sustain a marriage. It is God's desire when husband and wife are in a marriage, that they nurture marriage in a lifelong commitment. Things in those times certainly resembled some of the some of the times that we live in today when people divorce for no reason at all. I'll never forget um, sitting down with Mr. Russell Robertson and, and Nan and married for 63 years at the time that I'd spoke with them Sixty-three years. Has anyone in here been married 63 years? Now we're all looking around to see because today's society, the sacredness of marriage is not held as it was. Now that might be a general statement and I may be wrong and I hope I'm wrong. 63 years of marriage says something about the sacredness of marriage as well. Today, society would say, You get tired of her, just divorce her, no big deal, right? She burnt the, the food I was cooking, I, I don't like the way she cooks. I often think of marriage as like a job. Very simplistic terms, like a job, right? Some people are good at their job and some people are not. A good marriage takes work, and we know this. But you got to clock in you got to take your time. You have to make it prosperous. Some are good workers, some are not. But you know at the heart of divorce itself is what Jesus says in verse 5. He said to them, it is because of your hardness of heart that he had to write these commandments. The usage of the word your points to them as Hebrew or religious leaders. You hold on to the law with such a tight grip. They were very legalistic. They would hold on to the law with such a tight grip that it would not leave any room for grace. It is because of your own stubbornness and hard heart that divorce was even permitted. And by the way, Moses never, ever encouraged divorce. He simply permitted it because they were so stubborn and stiff-necked. So Jesus addresses God-instituted marriage in, in its parameters by saying this. He goes all the way back to Genesis where it all began, the creation of man in the image and likeness of God. In verse 6, so there is no argument. Jesus spoke about things that are going on today and he addressed everything going on today by pointing back to what God had instituted at the very beginning. Verse 6 says, from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Not only is this logical due to the natural law. I could stop right there. Not only is this logical due to the natural order of the law itself. In the universe and physiology, not only do these make sense here, but they also are sanctioned by God Almighty. Human physiology and science say that there is male and female, and God said there is male and female. But what does marriage look like? What does it look like? Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. And what God has brought together, let no man separate. So we would be. We would often advocate that... Uh, The marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride or the church, wouldn't we? The the position of the Orthodox church today... I'm not talking about Greek Orthodox, I'm talking about right believing, right teaching... ...right understanding, right worship... ...would be that a marriage, a wedding... ...is to represent Christ... ...and the bride, his church. We advocate that this is a picture of Christ and his bride. And I often wonder this. Why is it that every wedding you ever attend... ...and I I don't want to offend anybody here, okay? Why is it that every wedding ceremony we attend... ...it's always all about the bride... <laughs> when in fact the picture is a union of male and female representing Christ and his people. See, the problem is we have Americanized the marriage ceremony so far away from truth that one must even be careful of how they walk around the bride because it is simply her day. And in fact, for two believers, it's Christ's day, isn't it? Now, if I offended you, come see me after. (laughs) I'll check my email tomorrow and see if I get any hate mail, but. It's almost like we want to start off on the wrong foot. If the two become one, is there ever an appropriate time when they are not one? Listen, with this approach, even the wedding ceremony becomes a display of the gospel. But see, we simply don't think in those terms. In all honesty, I believe that we have stripped away the gospel from the wedding and marriage and we need to put it back in its place. Now, now I know there are some here today, as I mentioned, some husbands or wives who have passed on. And you might ask, well, how does this apply to me? If I'd have known the sermon was going to be on divorce, I wouldn't have came. (laughs) Or the wedding ceremony, I wouldn't be here. We don't fit in that category. How does this apply to me? It's simple. The good news. Elevate the good news in your life now. Remember, we are looking forward today. And since the disciples were not at full understanding, Mark records this next inquiry. He says, And in the house the disciples asked him again about the matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, those are tough, tough words, it seems. And I know ministers today, and if there's a minister listening in, you know, uh, listening into this, I don't mean to offend, but you know, they have their they have their uh, framework. They won't marry anyone who has ever been divorced. I know some Christ honoring, Jesus loving people now who have been divorced, who serve Jesus with a love that would make us envious. So we need to be careful. Now, I know that uh, many people would be in trouble based upon these words alone. But I want you to look a little closer. According to the Hebrew teachers of the law, the divorce was contingent on infidelity. Which would, would be the only permissible means for divorce. This implies that the person seeking divorce has also been involved in infidelity or adultery. It doesn't mean simply if the man had divorced the woman uh, and he was in he was unfaithful, that the woman goes to another uh, uh, and gets married again, doesn't mean she carries that adultery with her. Okay, the man was guilty. Okay. It implies that the person seeking divorce has been involved with infidelity or adultery. So there's a deeper subsurface truth here to consider as well. In Jewish culture, the teaching for the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Sadducees, a wife would be guilty of adultery against her husband by having relations with another man. But listen to this. But if the husband did so, he was not found guilty. That's the culture they lived in. So I want you to hear what Jesus is doing. This is a deeper message. I want you to hear what Jesus is doing. Jesus is actually lifting up the importance and sacredness of a God-centered marriage. Yes, we know that. But He is also elevating the the dignity of male and female in the marriage. Jesus was being counter-cultural at the time when those folks in Jerusalem... Those who held to the law looked down on women. Jesus was the best example of defining biblical manhood and womanhood that ever existed. So our social justice people, you want an example of true justice, true equality? I'm not talking about this distorted mess that we see today. Look no further to Christ Jesus because He will steer us back to true biblical marriage that resembles He and the church and not this hodgepodge of madness that we see today. So we did a podcast not long ago. We were talking about society and humanity. And one of the questions was, if you were back in the 1900s and you were looking in on 2020, what would be your one word? What do you think that one word was? Crazy, right? Backwards, hodgepodge, distortion. A good wedding ceremony should be one that honors Jesus as it celebrates the union of a husband and wife. And listen, I'll never ever forget the first wedding that I ever officiated. And I would imagine out of all the things that I say today, this would be the one thing that you take home. I'll never forget this first wedding ceremony that I ever officiated. It was 2008, and I was a student at the College of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. This older couple, they wanted to get married. And um, I got the phone number from somebody. He said, this couple's looking to get married and wondering if if you could officiate. And they gave me their contact information. And I called the bride-to-be, and I set up a time when we could... We could come and sit together and I can hear their counsel or their testimony. I like to be able to counsel with them a little bit. So, this is before that I ever, you know, before I was a pastor. So, my counsel time had not been framed yet. So, I didn't say, well, we need to work through six weeks or eight weeks of premarital counseling. None of that existed for me yet. And so, I planned to meet with them at least once or twice to sit down and hear their testimony. And, and, and let's just say you live and learn, okay? Let's just say that. I showed up to do the ceremony. And the bride-to-be and the groom are sitting with me and, and I tried to counsel. There was chaos everywhere. There was simply nowhere for, that we could go to where we could just pray and, 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 and counsel just a little bit. All the chaos around us. Nowhere that we could go to seek the Lord together. And I had asked them before over the phone, I asked them this question. I said, have you ever been divorced before? And they both said, Yes. Okay, I assumed once before. (laughs) The time came for the wedding. Everything was set up in the backyard. I met the groom down front as he comes out in a Hawaiian shirt, shorts, flip flops, and a freshly cut mohawk. Now, listen, I am all for the casual wedding, I I think it's great. (laughs) In fact, I would prefer it. (laughs) But my first thought was, he's not taking any of this seriously. His whole persona was, let's get this over with. The bride marches out, she has a wedding dress on. And I was like, well, at least she's taking it seriously. There's hope. I performed the ceremony. Enjoyed some food at the reception. The time came for when I was about to leave and I asked for their marriage license so I can sign it with their witnesses so it would be legal and all. I opened it up, I read it, and I almost passed out in the living room. Looking upon this document, its contents will forever burn in my mind and will always be an example. You know how sometimes the Lord will use some things that happen what you ain't supposed to do and teach you what, what's right to do? <laughs> okay, this is one of those moments. I looked at this document and I said, Lord, what have I done? Because if I would have looked at this document before the wedding, I would have never performed this ceremony. I just kept hearing the bride say, we just want to make it right before the Lord. And I remember those words. I said, well, okay, well, that's, that's good. See, the groom was on his fifth marriage and she was on her third. A total of eight marriages between the two of them and no telling how many engagements in between. So I signed it and I said, Lord, have mercy. Something fundamentally wrong here. Before I left, I tried to do all that I could to encourage them. The bride says, as I mentioned earlier, we just want to make this right before the Lord. And that was encouraging. But then she spoils it with the next thing that she says. She looks at me, talking about her now husband, and she looks at me in the eye and she says, I'm going to change this man. I said ma'am the only thing that will ever forever change him is Jesus I pointed right down towards the Baptist church that was in eyesight and my last words to her before I got in my car now don't ask me if they're still married I do not know I lost their contact information the last words I said I said you see that church if you want to make it right before the Lord, you get plugged into that church. They both said they were believers, and I, and I took them at their word. You get plugged into that church or any Bible-believing church, and you serve together as husband and wife. Now, I say that in light of what Jesus teaches here on divorce and marriage, because right now, husbands and wives, work on your marriage. It don't matter how old you are. Don't matter how long you've been married, there's still time to work. Work on your marriage. Become good workers at it, honoring Jesus along the way and serving together as husband and wife. For those on the verge of divorce or even thinking about it, I would say to you to build those bridges again. Put Christ at the center. You might say, well, we've fallen out of love. We just don't have anything in common. You've got to work at it you got to put Christ at the center of your marriage. I'll I'll never forget this counseling, this couple whose marriage was in trouble. They were on the verge of divorce. And I asked them one simple question. I said to them, when was the last time that you prayed together as a couple? They had been married for quite some years. You know their response? Never. They've never sat down and prayed together as a couple. Is Jesus an advocate of divorce? No. By no means. But I can tell you this. What he is an advocate for and what is implied in these verses is forgiveness. Maybe there needs to be some forgiveness. I have seen people have more of a celebration when they get divorced than when they did when they got married. By the way, there might be some relief because there might be some abuse in marriage. And there might be relief, but divorce is nothing to celebrate. There might be relief because there might be some abuse or something like that. And and by all means, you you don't want to be part of something that's abusive. But it's nothing to celebrate. Theologian Dr. Harold Weiland said this of God's law in marriage and humankind's preconceived distortions of it. He says, we are here taught that marriage being an institution of God is subject to his laws alone and not the laws of man. Hence the civil law is binding upon the conscience only insofar as it corresponds to the law of God. So for those who are not married or for whose husbands or wives have passed on, what do you learn from this? We learn that God's law, God's will, and the gospel is the only thing that can bring pure, perpetual, long-lasting peace and instruction. It gives us the message that Christ and his bride are forever unified. And if a marriage mirrors this union, so shall husband and wife... ...who are equally yoked together mirror this union. Once the marriage and divorce is addressed, Jesus moves on to children... Why? Because some people were bringing little children to Jesus to have him touch them. But those disciples rebuked those who brought them. And when Jesus saw this, he became furious. He said, let the little children come and stop keeping them away because of the kingdom of God that belongs to people like this. So let's read verse 15. We'll go back to verse 14 in closing. I tell you with certainty, whoever does receive the kingdom of God as a little child will never enter in it. Then after he hugged them and blessed them tenderly, he laid his hand on them and sent them on their way. They brought the children so that Jesus could bless them. This is not the first time Jesus used the children to teach kingdom lessons on humility. If Jesus just taught on marriage and divorce and then moved to children, then the two must be related. Again, Jesus seized every moment to teach. And I, I have asked parents, I have to ask parents and children of grandparents, I have to ask us, all, all of us this question. Are we hindering our children in any way from knowing Christ and knowing Him more? Ha, have you become a roadblock for, for your child drawing close to Jesus? So I've got to ask myself, what have I done that prevented them to come to Jesus? What roadblocks have I set up? my own home, what roadblocks do I have in place that would prevent my sons from coming to know Christ? I want you to listen very carefully. They were bringing the children to Jesus and the disciples rebuked them. I believe that it is the parent's duty to train up your children. It's my duty. When I stand before the Lord and I stand before the Lord and I know their salvation belongs to them and them alone. But I believe that I will have that question if I was not faithful in my own home. To lead my children, to give them every opportunity to hear of Christ. Making disciples start in the home first and foremost. Could it be that our lives around, they focus around our desires instead of Christ? I want you to hear me on this. I am an advocate of learning in the local church and worshiping in the local church. But these things start in the home. They need to see mom and dad living out their faith. How is a child going to ever follow Christ if they see mom and dad in the home think it is of no value? So they need to see it lived out in the home. Do not rely solely on your pastors for spiritual growth. We believe in the preaching and teaching of the word of the Lord, but these things start in the home. I would not want you to solely rely on me on Sunday morning for your biblical intake. I would not want you to solely rely on me as your pastor for your only biblical intake through the week. So I'm an advocate of preaching and teaching and learning, but it starts in the home. And if the home is neglected in making disciples of our children, then do not expect the church to be able to fix them. When a child spends their life in a church that does not teach the foundations of their faith, what do you think will happen when they encounter an agnostic professor who challenges their faith, who challenges their faith? On the historical resurrection of Jesus, or the historicity of Jesus, what do you think, do they, what do you think they're going to say in, in those situations? Do you think that they are going to look at that professor and say, "We had jumpy houses, fall festivals, Easter egg hunts and pizzas." And do you think that that is going, do you think that that is going to win the day? Not that those things are harmful, unless there is no truth being taught with those things. But look at what Jesus does, okay? I would imagine Jesus, it says he embraced the children. I imagine that Jesus laughed with them. Have you ever seen Jesus as a person who walked the earth, Messiah, Savior, who laughed? I believe Jesus did. I believe he had had fun with these children. He embraced them, laughed with them, ...but he never forsook teaching them truth. So Jesus does some meddling here. Uh, And it is simply so that his people could live in peace with him and one another. In closing, my point is not to condemn anyone here today... ...but simply be true to the text... ...not to condemn anyone who has been divorced or any of that... ...but to encourage you now to seek the Lord's perfect will... I would also say this, repent where you need to repent. Forgive where you need to forgive. And teach our children the beautiful gospel of Jesus in your home. The Lord wants balance in your life, peace in your home, and the good news as part of your lifestyle. Would you join me as we pray?